It's been ruined. <laughs> You've destroyed the heart of it. You're listening to the social handmade Welcome to the Social Hand Grenade Podcast. My name is Joseph Wilson. Uh, like us, rate us on iTunes, on Podbean, SoundCloud. We've got other Stitcher uh, on our Facebook, uh, the Social Hand Grenade Podcast with Joseph Wilson on Facebook and all other. Tell your friends, tell people, tell the world. Now, we're back for our second series, but what another episode to bring you. Uh, we have Alan Francis. Hey, Alan. Thank Hi, you. Hi, man. Thanks for being on this. Genuinely, I've uh, been a huge fan. Um, I What I liked about it is that as soon as you came to the flat... Oh, let me close the fucking window. Yeah. As soon as you came to the flat, you started playing guitar. Now, yeah. I, I'm just going to close the window. Wait! Yeah. And edit point. Actually, you know what? I kind of like keeping that shit in. Yeah, it's quite good. I mean, I, I like the way you say, I'm going to close the window, and then the, we actually hear it being closed. <laughs> yeah, because I like, I like to try and make it at least so yeah. professional, but then again, I like yeah. all the fucking loose. madness. Loose. <laughs> loose. But Keep then it, it loose. It is quite, I don't know if that's laziness. Yeah. It's, it's quite laziness. Yeah, it's untogetherness, really, isn't it? It's, <laughs> togetherness. it's ill-preparedness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, why not? It's, it's, it's ill-preparedness. Um, but, uh, so you've, uh, you just came here, thanks for coming, and you know you're into guitars. So let's talk yeah. about guitars. So yeah. I didn't know this about you, which is great. You um, Tell me about your guitar history, because I play guitar, start getting into flamenco guitar. Wow. You, I think you're more of a proper guitarist. I, I used to play uh, bass guitar in a band when I was, you know, in garage band days, um, and uh, I, so I, I, I got into playing the lead guitar through that, and you know, into I played in folk music is what I did. I, I mean, uh, you know, at, at, at you, uh, when I was at uni, uh, I uh, played in an Irish folk band. I was the only non-Irish guy in the band. Uh, <laughs> And what we was just, it called? It, well, it was called um, Queer Crack, um, but that's what they're kind of called. Uh, and they've actually gone on to do really well. Um, there's, there are now only two of them, but various different people in, play with them. But I played with them for a little while back in the 80s, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, when folk was co- sort of coming yeah, up, Yeah, when it? Folk, yeah, it was really... Uh, met punk. Yeah, folk met punk. You're absolutely right. Yeah, there was the, the Pogues... Uh, all that kind of stuff, and we had a uh, a, a kind of um, guy called Kieran Cunningham who was just a really brilliant guitarist and singer, and uh, he led he led us through. He led us through, but we um, you know it gave us something to do at college. You know, made a few quid. Did you few, you, few s- you still though have the hallmarks of being in a band? I mean, yeah. I've always I've been in admirer of you, but especially your hairline. Yeah, now yeah. my rapidly, mine is rapidly <laughs> going. Yours, I saw some like videos of you for old school and stuff like. It's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's perfect. Let's be honest. Well, and you even do that dickish thing that people who have great hairline do. <laughs> you do the flick back. Oh yeah, when yeah, it gets, flick back. When it just gets too. When much. a guy who's in his late forties starts doing the flick back, he is a, a he is a bit of an arsehole. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's um it's, it's it's good. Yeah, it's a nice. It's healthy. I mean, a twenty-three-year-old doing the flick back. Yeah, fair enough. They don't know any better. No, they don't know any better. But some old git doing it. Right. It's like, come on. 
It's just I'm I'm worldly. Yeah, I'm untogetherness. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what I am. Um, so you, yeah, right. So let's start from there. Really, uh, you you went to uni. You were from Edinburgh. Yeah, from Edinburgh. Yeah. Uh, and that's when, so that's when the Edinburgh Festival started. Obviously, when you oh, well, it started way before me, <laughs> before my time. But but mean growing up, you've yeah. always had that living. Oh yeah, it was what amazing. was that like? That must have been cool. Huh? I remember seeing when I was like about you know thirteen or fourteen, seeing uh, Mel Smith and uh, Griffiths Jones live in a little sort of danky, damp smelling kind of cellar in the old town and uh it was just incredible because i mean they i knew who they were because they'd been on not the night got news and all that sort of mm. stuff and to see them you know just live in this small room which was sold out but there was probably only about 50 people in the audience was incredible so <clears throat> yeah to grow up around all that sort of stuff and uh and have um edinburgh is um quite an artistic and um, interesting, very European kind of city, very outward-looking cities. Um, has that happened more as the Edinburgh, as the festival's oh, yeah. got? Scotland is it, Scotland itself seems like more and more of a foreign country to me because I've lived in England for most of my adult life. And so when every time I go back to Scotland, I kind of think, fine, it's, it's so much more like a European country than England is. Right. And maybe it's because I'm older I notice the difference. Mm. But uh, certainly as a, as a kid... Um, you don't obviously notice these things so much, but yeah, the the festival was great and it was inspiring and comedy and acting, music. I used to busk in the festival with oh, my yeah? guitar. Yeah, I used to busk. I mean, the whole object of that was to try and get off with girls, really, but <laughs> completely that didn't work. I failed to do that. Oh. I failed to do that. But, uh, <laughs> but you know. It's amazing when you're a teenage guy, you think that uh, playing a guitar in a square uh, is going to get you somewhere with women. You, um, but you, you got somewhere, not with, uh, maybe not with women, but with comedy. Yeah. Oh, you like that little thing? Yeah, I like that. Segway. Oh, it's, it's so cheesy and hacking. Radio yeah. 4, I love yeah. it. Yeah. Um, you won the, so you won the So You Think You're Funny. That was your main acclaim when you started stand-up. Yeah, I didn't expect to win that what at it all. is and <clears throat> what I'd like to, you to know, it has, my question is, it has now awards for new acts. Has it kind of deteriorated? Like the significance? Maybe. I don't know. Certainly when I won So You Think You're Funny, it was... Uh, it, it, I mean, I think it's it seems like a bigger thing now in some ways because there's more sponsorship involved. There's more, uh, you know, the, the, the winner gets... Um, I mean, I got a crate of uh, beer was my prize. <laughs> really? Yeah, <laughs> a crate of beer, which was drunk that night, you know, the night I won it. Uh, I had a few of them, but other people had them as well. Um, and now you get sent off to Canada or something for just for last festival. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, fuck. You know, I thought no. it was the other way. I thought it had some like underground prestige. Oh, it had an underground prestige, but it was very much underground. Yeah. Is it? I did think I did get a, some money as well. I can't remember how much, but it was all right because uh, it was back in 1991. So it was maybe a couple of hundred quid, which in those days was, you know, was a couple of hundred quid. You know? <laughs> so it was, it was it was all right. But um, yeah, I mean, it was strange because the, 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 the So You Think You're Funny for competition um it is really good. It's a good way for uh, people to get into uh, stand-up. But now it's, God knows. I mean, I literally walked up. To, they had heats. Um, and the heats were in Edinburgh at the beginning of the festival. And I walked up to 
the Counting House, which is now which is a free fringe venue now, I think. And I went in there and just said, oh, can I put my name down for the uh, competition? And the guy went on before, and they did. They said, all right, right. And then the competition started about an hour after I said that. Right. The the, the heat. And the guy who went on before me was wearing a spangly (laughs) suit and looked like, um, you know, looked like the cheesiest mainstream kind of comedy entertainer you could possibly imagine. And he came on and he, um, he got a sort of sneering titter from the audience and he just went was that for me or the suit <laughs> and uh that gave me confidence i just thought i can follow this guy i'm on after this guy i reckon i can do okay here because <laughs> that you you started out which i only got the tail end of it was the madness of the alternative circuit where all yeah. these worlds blended and now it's become quite mainstream i think yeah comedy. very mainstream yeah. um what has been the massive shift for you, where you noticed the moment in comedy wasn't like underground stuff of Griffith Jones and Mel Smith. Yeah, yeah. When now it's all like suited and booted and yeah, probably uh, like that guy who was before yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, very mainstream. I mean, I mean, when I first started in comedy, it was all about um, a political agenda. You know, I mean, comedians um, were there to. <clears throat> or a lot of them. I mean, there was guys on the circuit. I mean, brilliant guys. Bob Boynton, I remember. I don't know if you know that name. But he was a real sort of, he was a sort of Cockney, uh, really left-wings, Marxist sort of. Angry. Uh, angry Marxist. Of course he yes. was. Fucking brilliant, yeah. <laughs> he got on about Thatcher. <laughs> you know, and uh, <laughs> it, was, it was real like, you know, John Major's a fucking wanker, you know, and that would be his opening line, you know, and it's not really a joke, but but he was, he did have some good material, to be fair, Boynton, he used to go on about, <laughs> I think he did some line, line about John Major stone-cladding his fucking house or something, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, but there was an agenda then, and then as people like, um, I, I think I first noticed, people like Frank Skinner started coming through, um, yeah, and Frank's and there was a change. I think the sort of lefty alternative people had they'd changed comedy away from um, gags about the mother-in-law, gags about blacks, mm. and all that. Um, and gags about Jews, and gags about Jews, gags about Jews, um, gags about fat women, you know, whatever. Um, Scotsman being mean as well, mm. but those kind of j- jokes had had been eradicated by the radical lefties. And then the the new mainstream, what I, I what I would call the new mainstream, started coming through, which is guys, you know, telling jokes about, you know, uh, you know, masturbation, uh, masturbation, yes, masturbation, <laughs> exactly, basically. basically masturbation. It opened the door to masturbation. <laughs> the Marxists. The I mean, Marxists it's one of the great achievements. <laughs> It's one of the great achievements of, of the Marxist comedy movement <laughs> was to open the door no. to masturbation. Brilliant. Yeah. I, I must, next time I see Bob Boynton, I must tell him that. Actually. <laughs> they yeah. played an integral role. Uh, so, but you, you like, because you're quite political. Yeah, I am. But I, I don't wear it on my sleeve on stage. I will talk about things that annoy me. Uh, and I'm, I think that people say... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm left-wing, I suppose, but I'm, all, I'm not blindly left-wing. I'm quite critical of the left and a lot of, you know, the stupid, sh- stupid shit they come out like with. Like what? Well, I just, I just always sort of get annoyed when I used to go to... I, was, I mean, I used to be seriously left-wing. I used to go to Revolutionary Communist Party meetings, you know. 
and uh, you get people, and you couldn't say anything. You know, you just say, uh, you know, if you found a woman attractive or something like that, you weren't allowed to, you know, there was elite, you know, and they, they just jumped down your throat on, on anything. And I just found it all a bit boring, you know, and, and a bit, you know, people who are in, a lot of them were quite obviously from quite well-off middle-class backgrounds who wanted a violent Marxist revolution. And they, I don't think they thought it through. <laughs> Let's have a fight. Yeah, they, they hadn't really thought it through, you know. And they go on about that at the meeting and then they go off for falafel. After <laughs> and it's like, where are you going to get your falafel when the cars are on fire? Right, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, but I am left-wing, yeah. Because you've, uh, but talk about like, I want to talk about like um, the, well, if, if I may, if you're... Uh, like the uh, post-Brexit and the Remain oh, yeah. uh, in Scotland and how do you fare with that, especially with someone who lives in England? Yeah. When you go back, you say how it's changed kind of Scotland or at least Edinburgh. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, Scotland feels like a, much more like a different country. I, mean, I just noticed the other day that Scotland have um, abolished the right to buy your own house, uh, your own council house. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, they've abolished it in Scotland. It hasn't had much play here on the news because the Scottish government have basically said, you know, we can't meet our social housing targets if we allow people to buy their own council house because it takes social housing out of the market. So, and it's a massive kind of reversal of one of Thatcherite's, Thatcher's, you know, flagship policies mm. of, of allowing people to buy them. And it's funny, in Scotland it's quite big news, but down here it's I not mentioned. I haven't heard anything. Yeah, it's not been mentioned. And it's really interesting, you know, that it hasn't been mentioned. And I think it might be because quite a lot of people down here think that maybe they should probably end that practice down here as well because they need the social housing for rent, you know. And uh, uh, I think Scotland is becoming a bit more of a socialist country. Really? I think so. I mean, it's, because it they voted to be, remain. Yeah, remain. And also they remain in the EU a year ago. Yeah. So they've had quite, there's been quite a lot of po political stuff going yeah. on in the UK, especially in Scotland. Yeah. Um, but you've got Nicola Sturgeon, uh, who's the first minister... She's uh oh I, I like her. She's good. Yeah. Why I like her because you know you know forget all the political stuff with her suited and booted and yeah, yeah. talking very. She talks very clearly. Very clearly. Yeah, yeah. But you know she'll fucking twat you up in a Weatherspoon. Oh yeah, fucking like you know that girl's like, well you she'll, see a ball. She'll take the stiletto off. Oh, she, you know she's a tough It'll old girl. Go in your eye. Oh yeah, yeah. See yeah, that's yeah. that is in your eye, mate. Yeah. <laughs> tough old girl she's she is tough she's hard and she's she's a dangerous combination she's hard and very clever she's very intelligent and uh, someone's hard as fuck and very intelligent that's when that's when they get on in life i think yeah. so like so there, there is a change in uh, um scotland i mean what, what i would talk about there's people that listen around the world and thank you once again for people that who, like people listen saudi arabia and australia and yeah. chile and Wow. All these places, yeah. Yeah, wow. What I, I, what I like I to love give the to world, them, man. I, what I like to give to them is like, what is Scottish humour? Because I've had other people do, because there's different pockets of different humour. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. the famous people are like Billy Connolly or Frankie Boyle or Craig Ferguson in America. Yeah. And it, how would you describe Scottish humour? Well, it's a good question. That is a brilliant question. There is, I mean, Scottish humour is quite broad. I mean, I think... People like, um, I mean, Billy Conley uh, is a great observationalist, but there's, and Frankie Boyle is too. Um, let's not forget the Frankie Crankies. No, let's let's forget them. Oh, the 
<laughs> the cranky. But I think there's a kind of there's a there's a really naff Scottish humour. There's a really naff Scottish humour that sort of plays on Scottish terminology and things. I remember seeing a panto when I was a kid, and they had this new, you know, a bird called a new, and it was called Ochai the new, you know, and that is a great example of how Scottish humour can be really shit. <laughs> you know, you know I mean, really, really awful in a way that English humor doesn't even get there. It, it's so sort of shit. But Scottish humor at its best is that self-deprecating kind of misery that. Um, <laughs> so yes, yeah. That I think people like Frankie have. Billy Conley has it too. Yeah. That kind of that understanding that you know Scotland is a bit shit, really. You know, it's like, but we're proud. Yeah, we're proud to be a bit shit. Because your stand-up is that kind of, as well, a bit like, uh, so you, you talk about a lot of that pisses you off. Yeah. And you really yeah. get into it. like, And you hit, yeah. do have that whole dour, you know, you're yeah. Scottish. What do you, what do you expect? Yeah, what do you, you expect? You've lived here in England, which is dour, but yeah. Scottish people take it to a huge... Yeah. But you're, that is, you're so proud in Scotland of being dour. Yeah, being dour and down and the gloom and the fact the weather's shit. And the food's fucking unhealthy, and people drink like shit and smoke like fuck, and we love that. Where's it coming you know, from? That's mental. That. You know, it's I... insane, isn't it? We just love it. We just love the fact that we're just utterly fucked. <laughs> but we're not. We're not as bad as. I mean, it's amazing how in in Europe there are people worse than us. You know, the Poles and the Russians and mm. people like that. You know, I mean, the Russians. I mean, they, they are seriously fucked, you know. So it's like, that makes us feel better, you know. Yeah. They think, oh, well, we're not as bad as that, you know. We don't <laughs> inject pure alcohol directly into our brains. But if we had the resources, <laughs> those if we, bastards. If we had our own oil. <laughs> if we had our own oil. So, we, like, the whole Edinburgh, you grew up around there. Um, yeah. And you, because you, you've done so much, like, your comic, you've written with comedy acted we'll get onto stage screen radio like everything you've done yeah um and you're uh very okay with the voiceover as well i've done a few yes uh, but i don't do it for banks or any right-wing organizations right no I, but I if mean, the fee is good but if the fee's good i will yeah, <laughs> yeah. how quickly i mean i've certainly done voiceovers for scottish whiskey I mean, that I don't have a problem with at all. No, why not? Why not? Yeah. Um, so you're growing up, but do you have a, like, a, were you trained being a thespian? Yeah, I was, yeah. I so went, you went to uni, you said? Yeah, well, I went to uh, the Metropolitan University in Manchester, which um, uh, the Polytechnic, as it was called in those days, and did a degree in drama there uh, for three years. But I'd always been interested in it. I, d I did, um, I went, every Saturday morning in Edinburgh, there was a thing called Upstage at the Royal Lyceum, where young people would uh, meet on a Saturday morning to uh, explore the world of drama and all the exciting uh, consequences therein. And, and try to get laid as yeah, well. Yeah, well, obviously, that was it. <laughs> I mean, and again, you know, no, no, no change there. <laughs> but, uh, but it was good fun, you know, and... Um, it was, you know, while other people were doing sports or whatever on Saturdays, I, I was doing that. And um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, so, yeah, I went to, um, I went to a Telford College in Edinburgh to do a one-year course in drama, which um, was fantastic. Laugh. What did it teach you? Well, 
it was it's interesting actually i mean it, it it's it's really about uh, because I'd always thought of drama before that or being in a player before that as something you did in your spare time on a Wednesday or Tuesday nights, Wednesday nights, you work for a few hours and you try and put on a play, which I'd done with the sort of Amdram stuff I'd done. But when I was at Telford, I realised that when you actually apply yourself full time into it, you know, if you rehearse 10 till 6, do a 40 hour week mm. rehearsing a play, you can actually produce something that's really high quality. You know? yeah. And it made me realise that that's what you have to do to get something really like work good. hard you have to work hard and you have to really treat it like a proper job and be professional so it taught me that so but like now and then you got into stand-up what when did you start stand-up i started stand-up in the end of the 90s i did my first open spot in um, the autumn of 1990 so was that straight uh, after like uni so uh, you were like no, mid-20s i left yeah i was i left uh, uni in uh nine in 88 in the summer of 88 and then I went to um, I got a job actually I got a tour in a theatre thing straight away which was quite cool and I uh, toured around the west of England and Wales um, up until the Christmas uh, of that year 80 and then in 89 January 89 I moved to London and uh, didn't start doing stand-up until the autumn of 90 so it was like the I think actually being unemployed for a year in London, I, had to, I mean, I did get another acting job, actually. I went off on another tour, but it was when I came back from that, I thought, right, I've got to, I've got to do stuff when I'm not working here. Cause so what, that was the pull of doing stand-up was because I'm not working acting, so I'll, I'll cover... Yeah. And I saw other people doing it. I went to, there was a club called the Red Rose Club at Finsbury Park, oh, which yeah. I would see, and, and it was a great bill. Uh, Sean Hughes, actually, was, was headlining, and a guy called Andy Linden, I don't know if you remember. I've heard of him. Andy Linden uh, was on the bill and uh, John Hegley. And uh, it was a really, it was really good. But uh, it was interesting because I'm sitting there in the audience thinking, these guys are good and, and I really like what they're doing, but I reckon I could do it. I don't think I could be as good as Sean Hughes or John Hegley or Andy at the time, but I thought I could get there. I could yeah. see a route to that. Um, and I knew I wouldn't be able to go on stage and be like that overnight. But then, so I started doing open spots. King's Head Crouch End mm. uh, was good. I used to go there every week. Comedy Calf. Of course. But, um, went there every week. And just built it up, really. Uh, and was that your whole dream growing up to do this? That you wanted to make this <coughs> being an actor? Comic? I mean, you've, you've certainly done the job. Yeah. Or was it one of those things, being back in the days, I've spoken to comics been going longer since the 90s, is that yeah. you just do it because people are and people it's a laugh mm. well nowadays comics now are starting to be that comic well it's a bit more like it's a bit like uh, um, so, sort of like snooker or something you know <laughs> you know like in the 80s snooker players most of the guys on the professional snooker circuit were guys who loved snooker and just loved it and just and they were entertainers and they used to sort of entertain the crowd in the way that Alex Higgins would do whereas now they are very very serious about it and they're very kind of professional about it mm. and they're fucking good at it and they make a shitload of money and i think that's happening in comedy as well now you get people who are just driven driven in that way that i wasn't quite driven in that way and i think i suppose like you said i've done all these different things acting comedy and uh, and writing and that and i think maybe it would have been better to concentrate on one thing sometimes i think if you're just concentrated on that but i've loved to do all of them um and it it kind of does make you a jack of all trades, master of none in a way. 
Um, but then again, at the end of the day, you've got to pay your bills. You that's know? it. But then again, each, uh, yes, but then again, like, I do stand up and a podcast and I act and I yeah. voice over and all the rest. But it is fun to have, be that jack of all trades. I love trades. it, yeah. It's, I th- think there's such a negative stereotype. Oh, he's jack of all trades, master yeah. all night. Go, no, nah, actually, yeah. that's bollocks. You, you can be. Yeah. Um, but you, but I would like to talk about like how the festival, when you go back to Edinburgh, how has it changed over the years? Wow. Because yeah. you started, you know, Griff Freestone has been on this podcast and he's said about, you know, going up with Mel Smith, yeah. Edinburgh. His mob sort of started it more or less. <laughs> yeah. So now when you go up, are you like, is it really commercialised? Yeah, it, it has changed a lot. I think the Free Fringe has been a good thing. I think that's been a massive breath of fresh air into the festival. Um, it was really getting sewn up by the big venues, the uh, Gilded Balloon Assembly and um, Pleasance. Uh, it was just starting to become, certainly the comedy festival was starting to become their festival. And it needed to ha- there needed to be a fringe of the fringe because originally, obviously the Edinburgh Festival was the Edinburgh International Festival, which still goes on, obviously, which is the the Usher Hall, the Royal Lyceum, the King's Theatre, um, you know, the big theatres in Edinburgh, the Scottish National Orchestra, the Royal Opera, and so the fringe came up as a thing to go alongside that. Um, back in the sort of it really came to the fore in the nineteen sixties, and then the International Festival was late 40s it started and then in recent as things went on 60s 70s 80s the fringe festival became an establishment in itself it was like two establishments you know i mean the traverse theaters program is technically part of the fringe but the traverse is a it is indistinguishable really from the royal lyceum in terms of British regional theatre. I mean, it's it's indistinguishable. I mean, so to to say that this Traverse programme is the fringe is a bit ridiculous, really. It's not the it's an establishment thing. Not saying it's bad, but it's an establishment thing. And um, so the fringe, uh, the, the the free festival, I think, has injected some. So it, it, we've got the spirit of the fringe back. I think with the free festival. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's like every wheel breaks, yeah. and now it got so mainstream, and now there's break off. Yeah. groups and actually a lot of the big acts that normally had to pay like 10 grand 15 grand plus for a little room it had now gone to the free fringe Ooh. so it's kind of a whole shift because they can and now there's this thing of oh no if you're like someone like you know if you're a big act uh, like uh, say phil jupiter or someone like that who's a great act and he's a brilliant guy but he gets accused in some quarters not by me actually because i think he adds kudos to the free fringe but at some quarters say well you know, Phil turns up, he does a show that people don't have to pay and see. And, of course, he makes a fortune in his bucket at the end. And What's the issue? I, I, I don't understand what the issue is there at all. I think that people are like, oh, he's the spirit of the free fringes. That we're, I mean, what Phil's doing is he's adding kudos to the free fringe. Yeah. He's adding legitimacy to it. Yeah. He's saying, look at this. This I'm Phil Jupiter's and I'm doing the free fringe. Therefore, the free fringe is good shit. You know, yeah. It's good stuff. I think he's now changing the next few years where it now become the free fringe... And then there'll be yeah. there'll be other breakup groups. The utter, the negative, the the, the the fringe. What would it be? The fringe where you they pay the audience to come. Yeah, in, exactly. You know. Um, but like, I want to talk about um that there is in stand up um there is a culture, um unfortunately how it's got more mainstream and it, there is a culture nowadays, especially with the recession and everything else that there is a culture of promoters not paying. Now that's always oh. been. A thing in showbiz. Oh, I know. But it's really, I think when money's got tight in the past few years, it's really become such a huge problem. I know. 
But you're right, it has always been a thing. I remember meeting Jim Bowen, the uh, famous uh, British stand-up comedian and um, host of Bullseye. And he said to me, he said, make sure you get paid. You know, when you do a gig, make sure you get paid. Because, uh, you know, if they don't pay you, you know, that, that's, that's very common in the world of stand-up comedy. He said that to me years ago, and he was a man in his 70s then, and he was talking about the world of stand-up comedy when he was in his 20s. He was doing gigs then where he didn't get paid. Mm. So it is, you're right, it is in the culture. And when we did the, the alternative circuit, uh, and I, I was a Johnny-come-lately to it, really. I mean, it started in the early 80s with people like uh, Aid Edmondson and Rick Mayo and, and Alexis Sale, who really got it going. And um, But the, the, the culture of that was everyone on the bill got paid the same. The opening act, the middle act, the closer, the compare. The compare might get extra because they had to work a bit harder, maybe. But um, And also they couldn't double. So, like, you might get a compare might get a bit extra to compensate them from the fact that they couldn't double and that they had to work all night, and not just do a 20-minute spot. Uh, but everyone else got paid the same, and everyone got paid in cash on the night after the gig. And that was the sort of ethos of alternative comedy circuit. And then, as it's become more mainstream, it's become more commercial, there's on that entrepreneurial kind of element have come into it, guys who run gigs who think... <clears throat> and they do it with on a shoestring budget with no money. A lot of it is... A guy will say to a theatre, "I can put um, I can put a comedian on who's quite a t who's quite a big name, uh, who can uh, fill your theatre, and then they'll f the the theatre will go okay. Then they'll contact that comedian and say, will you do an hour at um, X theatre for uh, seven hundred and fifty quid?' And um, that comedian will go, "Yeah, all right." And so he's got that, and so then he goes. Um, and he doesn't have any money, this promoter. But uh, so he then phone, he then asks around other comedians, someone like myself, for example, uh, who's not such a big name, but will you uh, do a 30-minute opening spot at this theatre for 200 quid? And I go, yeah, all right, why not? And so there he's got his gig, and then he, he's getting his money from the theatre. So he doesn't have any money to pay. So he can't pay you until the theatre give him money. And so... This kind of thing ends ends up happening that he he puts other gigs together and by the time when he gets the the money from the theatre from that gig, he's kind of promoting another gig with that money and he still hasn't right. paid the people from the first gig, and so it, it, he then ends up in this cash flow situation where he's not able to pay the comedians he's promised the money sure. to and people tempers free. That's one kind of scenario, but there are also worse guys worse than that who just who just don't pay, you know, they just don't pay. But it's a real issue in the business at the moment. But I think in the past few years, there's been a movement uh, where that has sort of been changing. People have been made aware through social media because there's groups yeah. on for comedians. Facebook. Right. Um, but it is one of those things. And uh, uh, it's just one of the... Uh, what I like to talk about this is so people know that behind the scenes yeah. kind of stuff. And it is that. It is, yeah, especially yeah. nowadays with there's fuck all money yeah. and venues. It's very tough for, for all. Um and the audiences don't have any money. People don't have yeah. spare money to go to gigs. That, that's so what's the, from someone that, because I was, after a few years of doing stand-up, that's when the crash hit. Yeah. So I want to ask you, for someone who's been doing it longer, there was, because I heard those the glory days yeah. of doing stand-up was loads of work, and to now, like, what yeah. have you learned as a performer, through the acting as well, or comedy, or if it's changed, that moment when the crash happened? Well, it, yeah, the crash was obviously a massive factor. 
the uh, you, when I first in the nineties. Uh, there was there was a lot of money about. There was a lot of gigs about, and it's it's it, it, it goes from uh, people had higher take home pay in the nineties. I mean that period when of the the early years, I would say, of the Blair government was an incredibly uh, golden period, where there just seemed to be a real boom. Um, people seemed to have money. Um, they would spend their money in comedy clubs. The comedy clubs would then pass that money on to comedians. Um, I mean, I remember talking to a guy the other day about this. A, a, a play um, at the Royal Court. I did a play at the Royal Court in the in the mid nineties, and my wages for doing that play were one hundred and ninety quid a week. And um, you could get one hundred and seventy, one hundred and eighty, one hundred and ninety quid easy for doing one stand up gig in, at that time in the mid nineties. The same amount of money as a week's wages in a theatre like the Royal Court. Whereas now, um, I was at the Royal Court a few years ago doing a thing, and uh, a week's wage there now, their basic that they pay, is 575 quid a week. And now, uh, a stand-up doing a gig in London will get 100, 120 quid if they're lucky. So it's so, kind of reversed. So it's just, the stand-up wages have gone down. But that's partly because actors have a union. And the actors' union has made sure that their wages have gone up and, and all that. And the comedians don't. But it's also partly people don't have spare money. Um, but that hit, the, the, the 2008 crash, um, I really noticed it. I really noticed gigs closing, people not going out. Mm. And we're seeing it with Brexit, actually. Oh, really? Okay, speak about yeah. this more. Well, I think that uh, there's just... You know, at the moment with Brexit, we, we're, it's, it's just uncertainty, isn't it? And it's not really hitting people in the pocket quite yet. But I think people are being more wary that they're saving for a rainy day. They're thinking, shall we go out to a comedy club tonight and spend that money? Or shall we just buy a bottle of wine and watch a DVD? You know, and it's a bit cheaper. And, you know, yeah. And we don't know what's going to happen. You know? Yeah. So... People, I mean, you are at the sharp end, aren't you? In a in a, gate, in a thing like stand up, mm. uh, you're at the sharp end of the economy. If you're a, you know, if you've got a really good job in in the civil service or something like that, then you're a bit more cushioned from these things, you know. Although, a lot of them did lose their jobs after two thousand and eight. You so like being a being a comic. I mean, you talk about the, those pressures. I mean, are there other pressures like because you've about being a comic then uh you've supported uh when you're working on the big impression yeah yeah which i had alice mcgowan as well on this podcast and he was saying how wonderful you're to work with and how good you are oh wow yeah she was speaking about you yeah well uh, that's man. i think the 12th episode um i'll have to listen to that yeah <laughs> um no alistair is, is an amazing character i mean he um um what was brilliant about the big impression is that alistair got me involved right from the start and, from a stand-up, uh, uh, yes, and from I, I worked with Ronnie Ancona, who was uh, also did the big impression with him, did all the female impressions, and um, so Alistair knew knew me, knew my work from there. So I was involved in the very first pilot of that, and and, and we we did, we went to the BBC and did a table read, and so I, I it's weird because the big impression I was involved right from the start. Did was involved in every series of it. They did some specials as well so a couple of summer specials a couple of easter specials um maybe a christmas special 
and right until when it finished. And so it was a it was a great experience, you know. What's the experience like? Because you know they about writing for a sketch show because you've done like some serious theatrical plays. We'll get onto Warhorse, mm. you were in for a year. Yeah. The West End, and in the past you've done like Uncle Wagner. Yeah, yeah. And some like serious, you're a th- proper thesp, yeah. darling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like s- hardcore stuff. And then you do stand-up. And then you do what I want to know is the difference between Well, Uncle Wagner is, is actually quite a funny play. It? It oh, it's is not funny. Wagner. No, it's not Wagner. Wagner. Uh, did I say Wagner? <laughs> yeah, you said Wagner. <laughs> Wagner. Wagner. Wagner, of course, is um, um, uh, is a like great Jews. musician. He doesn't like Jews, but he's a Take great the tap man. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like, I want to know the difference. <laughs> what, a, what a fucking moment, hand grenade moment. Um, what a what's the difference between being a serious actor and then the skills you have to transfer yeah. to writing uh, impressions, sketch shows? Well, the the Alison McGowan show was was never was was really kind of quite uh, gentle kind of stuff. You know, I mean, it was never. It wasn't like Rory Bremner's show, which was uh, really quite hard-hitting, edgy satire, which I'm a big fan of, and I really like Rory Bremner. It wasn't like that. Um, Alison McGowan's show was a uh, a gentle kind of mocking of celebrity culture um, and the stupid, ridiculous kind of um, uh, ways that they behaved. I mean, they did their Posh and Vex thing, and it was all about, you know, the sort of banal kind of lifestyle of posh and pecs, you know. Whereas someone like Bremner's doing impressions of politicians and really hitting much more hard. So it was going... And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it it was... I saw it on that spectrum. I think my stand-up is is much more... um, I I mean, it's more sort of meaty, I suppose, than what I was doing in the Alison McGowan show. Uh, But it's very much my own an extension of my own opinions and things like that. And a lot of the humour that I do in my stand-up failed the test to get on the Alison McGowan. Really? So give me an example, if you can. Well, I, I, yeah, I'm just trying to think. I, I mean, I remember writing sketches um, about all sorts of things that um, they, they felt... I, I, I did... I, I wrote a, a sketch about... Uh, was it John Peel, I remember, writing a sketch about him. Uh, at a dinner party, uh, ending up ha- slagging everyone off because they didn't know the latest bands and all this. And right. they were all his age. Right. They were all people at this dinner party who were all John Peel's age, who were all into sort of, you know, uh, Pink Floyd and things like that. Yeah. And he was got, going on about, you know, the screaming abdabs. And, you know, <laughs> why, you know, and he ends up wrecking the whole dinner party. And I thought that was quite funny, but um, they said, oh, no, and he... I'm not sure that our demographic will really know who John Peel is. And all. This was something that I learned after a while. Okay, they are going for a demographic. They're going for... They, 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 it's a family show, I think, is what they were going for. They were, they, they were going for an audience that mum, dad and the kids and everyone could watch and enjoy. And they didn't want to lose any of the... They didn't want any of the audience to kind of feel left out of that. Is that kind of suffocating as a writer... That you going? Oh, I just I want. Yeah. I've got this. Is really good. Yeah. So what do you do with that material, like that John Peel sketch? Yeah, do you I use it for yeah, your yeah, own. Yeah, you use it for your own, or you talk. I mean, uh, poor old John died not long after I wrote that sketch. Actually, I don't think it was my fault, but uh, <laughs> uh, but once he died, I think that the sketch died with him. Really, sure. But um, the 
I, you know, it's, it's, it is frustrating. I mean, uh, Julian Dutton, who was another writer on the show, um, me and him wrote a, a sketch show for uh, Radio 4, which became, which was actually called Inside Alan Francis, which was yes. a little bit unfair, really, considering, uh, you know, Julian Dutton was one of the writers for that, and a guy Richard Turner was another writer for it, and myself and Anthony Nielsen and uh, Barney Power. There were so many people contributed to that show, you know, to call it Inside Alan Francis. <laughs> I'm a bit embarrassed about that, really, although I was the kind of main character in the show. Yeah. But so a lot of we actually did include a lot of stuff in Inside Alan Francis, which wasn't we weren't able to include in Alistair McGowan's show, uh, which was quite good because you you've got a home for it, you know. Of course. So yeah. like um, so like writing, um, there was uh, with, when you're writing, uh, is it quite hard on the show? Because in the interview with Alistair, and this is not a gotcha, I promise you. Yeah. Uh, Certain, you know, it's that hard like, with writing and trying to get a connection with people. Alistair was t spoke about in the interview about on that set, there was a lot of it between him and his uh, Ronnie, they were going out. Yes, there was a lot very of difficult. very difficult, and even Alistair spoke about it very openly. Mm. And in terms of like creating something when there is, well, basically, a boyfriend, boyfriend, mm. and girlfriend that dynamic <laughs> that you know, already doesn't matter what age you are, it's yeah, if yeah. it's not going well. Yeah. <laughs> So what was that like for you as a writer? And I'm sure so many writers have experienced this. That it was all very that... frustrating. In what respect? Well, yes. I mean, Alistair and Ronnie uh, had a, 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 a... They had a fantastic relationship. I think they loved each other very deeply, and I think they still do. But um, they, uh, they, had, they came from different places. They came from different places. Ronnie was, I think, always a little bit less... Uh, I mean, Alistair, forgive me for this, but I think a little bit... Her instincts were slightly less mainstream than Alistair's. I think Alistair understood the demographic of the audience. He understood what the show was. He un and Ronnie was often trying to push things that were outside the parameters of that. You know, I mean, and some of it worked really well. She did this... Um, we did this sketch where Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant ran a burger van, and they just sort of... You, so you had these great glamorous stars of Hollywood from the 1950s uh, just running this kind of burger van on, in, in sort of in the town centre square at night with piss heads coming up and buying burgers. And that. and that worked really well, and it was very funny. But I think there was some resistance to that idea from Alistair because he kind of thought, well, you know, will our audience really know who Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant are and all that? But it got, that one slipped through the net and actually became a very popular sketch <laughs> yeah. because... There was a few of them, wasn't there? Yeah, and I think, some of the, I think a lot of kids who watched the show probably didn't quite know who Audrey Hepburn was, but it didn't matter. Yeah, I mean, I would have been one of those, but I used to watch, as a kid, uh, impressions, like, well, all those impressions shows religiously. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd be one of those people as a young kid or what, a teenager or whatever... I don't really know who these people. Yeah. I know they they look old, but I think it was done enough where oh they look like they're old and you yeah. understand they're old and they're out and the, what are they doing there? They're out of place. Yeah. There. Um. So like you write and then you. Sp you I was going to say talking about writing. You even did this, these sketch shows and you've written your own plays and then yeah. even you've done the radio shows with Alan like your own thing inside Alan Francis and Alan Davis the other comic. Yeah, 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 Alan Davis. Uh, yeah. What is the difference between performing and writing in terms of ego? Because obviously as a performer yourself, you, you know, you like to perform. And as a writer, is there some conflict in yourself? You're like, no, but I want to do it all. 
or was per- Inside Alan Francis the perfect opportunity to do both? Yeah, Inside Alan Francis was was a great opportunity, and it was brilliant because, I mean, I'm not saying the show was brilliant. I think the show was quite good, but it was brilliant for me because um, um, I was able to perform stuff I'd written and also perform stuff that other people had written for me, right. which was really great. And it's like when you're doing stand-up, you tend to... Um, you're, you're pretty much the only writer. I mean, I do have friends that I, that give me material, and I'll and I steal material from friends, uh, <laughs> you know. And, but I I'll always say to them, I'll say that's really funny. I'll, I, I'm going to write that down. I'm going to use that. And it, and it's funny if they're comedians, they're always very generous about it. And if they're not comedians, they don't quite understand why. Well, you know why it would work yeah. <laughs> but you know they don't they, they're like what, what are you talking about why, why would you I'm no, being no, serious there's no, something no, there's, in that don't worry about don't it don't worry there's something I'll in that. that there's something in that but yeah um, but right in terms of ego writing is um, I think a lot of writers are very egotistical and um, I, I've been in meetings where you know you're, you're, you're writing for a sketch show for television and then there's a there's a table read of the final draft of all the sketches and the contributors are all there, all the writers. And you can see some of them just like fuming, you know, as their sketch has been. And people just, it's so serious, it's ridiculous. It's been ruined. <laughs> You've destroyed the heart of it. You know, and it's just <laughs> hilarious. It's just so, it's so funny. And I felt like that myself. I wrote a sketch for Alison McGowan's show, which was, I'm not saying it was the greatest sketch in the world, but it was about... Um, uh, it, there was a thing co- that Nicky Campbell used to do on telly where he, he, he watchdog. It was called Watchdog. And I wrote a sketch which was a spoof. I wrote a series of them, three or four sketches that were sort of spoofs of Watchdog. So Alistair would play Nicky Campbell and Ronnie would play the other woman. Uh, I can't remember who it was, Carol Smiley or someone. And um, I thought the sketches were, were quite good and they were quite subtle, I thought, when I wrote them. And... Um, we did a ta- an initial table read, and it all went very well. And uh, the producer, um, Charlie Hansen, said, uh, "These are great. We'll put them in the pile to see, you know, to do." And uh, when, as a writer, you sort of come out of a meeting like that, going, "Oh, great! You know, there's four sketches that are in the pile to do. They're going to be made. I wrote those, and that's great." But um, when I went along to the read, some uh, to the uh, to Teddington to watch the show being shot, and I was sitting in the green room there. And uh, these these sketches came on, and they'd been horrifyingly rewritten. Oh no! And and it was like th- these terrible jokes had gone in, that at the time I just didn't know what to say. And uh, the audience, I don't think the audience laughed at them that much, really. I, I mean, but they still ended up going out, and you just kind of think, well, God, I've gone from being the guy who would have been, you know, in the bar afterwards saying I wrote that, <laughs> to being the guy saying. I've no idea who wrote that. <laughs> no idea. It's awful. How does that get on? <laughs> but um, in terms of uh, you've done so much writing, uh, all these shows and your own stuff as well. Um, I would like to talk about to go back to acting. So you kind of then you, you also in a big impression a few things. A few. I, I appeared in it a bit. But yeah. then you've done, you've appeared in so much comedy stuff. You're like one of these act comedic acts that. <laughs> You've done everything, but you know you've really done it. And that, like the best one, I was the Alan Partridge one. Oh yeah. And you actually spoke about um, Smith and Jones at the start, and you were in Smith I was and in Jones. Smith and Jones. Alas, yeah. Smith and Jones. Yeah. 
let's talk about Partridge and let's talk about how proud and Scottish you felt when you were in Taggart. Oh, wow. So let's first, which one would you like to go for? Taggart or Alan Partridge? Well, let's talk about Partridge because my relationship with Steve Coogan goes back a long way. Great. I've known I've known Coogan um, for a long time. He was at um, college with me in Manchester. We shared a flat together. Shit, really? Uh, yeah, and uh, he is. We we used to do performing together uh, back in Manchester before I did stand up on my own. Coogan and I did sketches and things like that. And um, I I went off. It was quite strange, actually, because when I went off to do a, an acting job that I, t- that I mentioned earlier, touring the west of England and Wales straight after college, Coogan went down to London and started doing open spots at the Comedy Store, and uh, uh, the rest is kind of history, really. But I kept... I've always kept up with him. Um, we're still friends. I was just at his 50th birthday the other year there, just last year. And... Um, I've written a lot with him. I've written more with Steve than I've performed with him, actually, to be honest. I uh, I was involved in writing, I don't know if you remember these characters that he did, you probably do, Paul Calf, uh, which... Uh, no shit. Yeah, I was, uh, me, and, me and Coogan used to sit in his uh, house in Manchester and write scripts for Paul Calf. No shit, really? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I know, I know. And then you see him change it. You're like, yeah. you fucking bastard. Well, he usually, to be fair to me, he often made it better. He often made it better. He would cut to the quick. Um, and the other one we used to write was Duncan Thicket, a character. Oh, yeah. Duncan Thicket, you know. Who's desperate to be a stand-up. Yeah, something. he tried to be a stand-up, yeah. And wow. He observational comedy. And then, and so, yeah, uh, I did, uh, I've done a little bit of um, acting with him. I'm not massive, uh, I was in a Christmas special of Alan Partridge some years ago, and um, play, uh, knowing me, knowing you, it was called. And I was in Mid Morning Matters right. as well, playing a sort of rival DJ who's like just a wanker. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but yeah, no, I keep. I, he's an interesting guy, Coogan, and I, I um, I'm very fond of him. Interesting. And, what what sense? Well, he's. I mean, he's a kind of comic genius. I mean, he is really. Um, he's he's absolutely brilliant and spot on, and really, he gets to the nub of 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 why something's funny very quickly, and he's brilliant at it. And he's he, he's a brilliant observer, not just in terms of the actual lines, but in terms of the way people behave, and he's. But what makes him interesting as a human being, I suppose, is he he's very, he's very flawed. He's a deeply flawed person. Really? And, um, hmm. you know, he, I think he would admit that himself, you know. So he's kind of like this guy who's a kind of genius on one hand, but, you know, fucks up in his private life. Oh, really? Time on oh. the other. So he, there's this kind of... Because we don't really know much about his private life. No, and, and people nor should we. Of... <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> nor should we. But no, I mean he's, I mean he's a good guy, and his heart's in the right place. Actually, he's he's a guy who's who's trying to be good and wants to be good, and his politics is very good actually. And he he's a big you know he's a supporter of um, you know a progressive society where richer people contribute more than poorer people. He's he's all into that, uh. um, um, but a fascinating guy. So that was how I got involved in. Um, with Coogan is because I've always been involved with Coogan. 
What other but, stuff have you done apart from uh, pissing around students doing the Paul Calf and Thicket? Yeah, well, um, w- there was a show that he did for the Edinburgh Festival that I helped him write, which uh, we, um, which was it was a good show actually. It was in fact the show that he that he won the Perry Award with. Really? Yeah, and it was a, a we had there were some great characters in that show. There was a, a guy called. Um, Ernest Dickler, who was a, a sort of uh, uh, a, a guy who was uh, like a health and safety kind of right. guy, and uh, we did we wrote this kind of thing where he did a slideshow and everything, and he showed all the things that were wrong health and safety, and he sort of you know he's the sort of guy who would say, "Are you wearing rubber soles?" Yeah, you know, because there's, there's an electric current in here. If you're not wearing rubber soles, you're in trouble. <laughs> you know, you're in serious trouble. Uh, you know, it was like that, and, and we, we'd have just stupid gags in it, like um, "What's wrong?" You know, there's a car being towed, and he, would, and he would point at the picture and go, "What is wrong with this picture? What is wrong with it?" You know, there's a car being towed, and of course nobody would know. And he'd point to the car that's at the back being towed and going, "That's the car that ha- that that <laughs> that car hasn't broken down. It's that one that's broken." Down. You know, it's just stupid sort of shit like that. But yeah, it was, it was good fun. And John Thompson worked on that show. Uh, as well and uh, it was a good laugh so you kind of learn all that writing and all mm. that performing character and obviously that bred into yeah. the career that you've had already for like yeah. 20 uh, plus years 25 plus years yeah and, and we did it that. through I mean Coogan was a massive uh, influence on me really because being meeting him at college working with it and just improvising and making shit up you know, it, hel- it, it helps your comedy muscles, you know, in your brain, just being like that. And uh, I suppose I didn't want to, I mean, I probably could have worked more with him and really been much closer to him and been much more on his coattails than I have been. But I wanted to always be my own man and I, I want to do my own stuff. And even if I don't, uh, you know, I don't, uh, you know, make as much money or sell as many your records or whatever as as he does that i want to just be my own man but i mean i suppose like you know you you've done quite a lot which you've done down the the theatrical yeah quite hard i mean you've done taggart yeah taggart right which is is what describe what tag is (laughs) taggart is a well, well taggart is a very interesting thing because taggart is a scottish crime drama a kind of whodunit uh, contemporary crime drama, um, and the character of Taggart hasn't been in it for about ten series now because the actor who played Taggart died mm. about twenty years ago, so it's still called Taggart, um, and it's it's kind of uh, Scottish and it's dour, uh, dour, and it's set in Glasgow and it's like there's been a murder and all that's that. The that's, that's the been a murder. There's been a murder. It's all that kind of stuff. Really sinister. Really sinister, dark, and um, all filmed around sort of Govan and places like that, and Mary Hill, parts you know, parts of the the old Dockland areas of Glasgow down the East End, Clyde Bank areas. It's all filmed there with a darkness. They don't have to do anything. You just have you just have to film in Scotland, and you get the darkness. You know. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's film in Scotland in July and it'll be dark. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, I was in an episode of that playing. A, it was quite a good, fun episode. Me, my, the character I played and my wife 
was a uh, clairvoyant who was, um, you know, sort of conning the press into, um, uh, you know, making uh, making uh, them believe that she knew that uh, somebody who had been murdered was telling her through, um, you know, through the spirit world uh, clues as to who the murderer was. And not this rubbish. And of course, she was just doing that to advance her own career, and it was bullshit. <laughs> and um, hang it, on, sorry, this is in the this is in the thing in the right, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got confused. I am not married to a clairvoyant. I've never been married to a clairvoyant. Certainly not one who uh, has any way involved with murder. But um, <laughs> no, the character I was playing was right. was married to a, a another character who was a clairvoyant, and uh, it turned out that we had actually committed the murders ourselves. So you done the murder. We done the murders. We done the murders, and then you get done. You know, it's quite funny. I, I mean. And then you you kind of like you spent a year from that, and then you did all other stuff. No, I want to talk about uh, War Horse. Yeah, because you in this it's a massive production yeah. in the West. Well, I think it's around the world, isn't it? No. Yeah, it's all over. It's franchised out. Yeah, I mean, you did spend a year yeah. in the West End. That must have been the pinnacle, surely, or one of the. Well, it was uh, fantastic. I've never seen the play. Everyone I've met says it's amazing. It is amazing. Ex- describe what it's like. So you've done the acts on TV. You've done the stand up. You've done the, but what is it that art of being in a West End theatre? Well, huge yeah. production. How many people does it fit? Three. It's eleven hundred actually, but it was sold out pretty much every performance. Wow. Um, and it, it it did. I mean, the thing, the main thing about being in a West End play is your is staying power and stamina really, and and making sure that you do a good performance and a good job every show and every and they do keep on top of you I mean The War Horse is a national theatre production and so the associate director um, who was in charge of the production was a guy who worked for the national and he made sure that, that the standards didn't drop below a certain level so you couldn't get away with with any fucking about really you, you know if you went in and you were tired and you kind of gave and you phoned in a performance because you couldn't be asked they would be on you for that, you know. They'd be like, well, what happened last night? You, you seemed a bit, you know, you were a bit tired. Did that ever happen? It or didn't happen to me because I knew that, that they would say that to me if I did that. Because so you've been on the ropes, yeah. or meaning you, yeah. you've been in the ring, as I've it were, been not the, against the ropes. Yeah. For, you know, years. Yeah, for years. So I knew that that was the thing. That, have you ever it seen happened that happen? to younger actors in the company, to be honest. And what's that like? Is it like a tension? Do you see like, oh, God, <laughs> you walk away going, Phew. Well, they, they quite often get a bit upset by it. And you, and you quite, because I was the equity dep on Warhorse. So I uh, ended up being a little bit of a kind of, for, the, for a lot of younger cast members, they saw me as a kind of uh, someone they could go to and talk to who was, because I'm, I'm the same age as, or, even older than the associate director. So they, a lot of the younger actors see me as someone that they could sort of talk to and say, oh, I just got a telling off about that. And, and I'd have to sort of say, well, you know, um, you know you've just got to get your shit together, really. I mean, you, you know, at the end of the day, that's the job you're doing. But I sympathise with you. And, and if, if the guy had talked to them in a way that upset them slightly or something... But there was a lot of that. On a big production like that, you've got 37 members of the cast, you've got about uh, 20 crew, you've got about 10 or 12 stage management, uh, you've got all your dresses, you've got um, your wigs, makeup, props, you, uh, uh, dir- associate director. I mean, there's a huge amount of people in there. Yeah. 
So everyone's got to be on their game yeah. because it's a machine that. And the puppeteers. And the star of the show, Warhorse, is the horse. And the, the job that the puppeteers do is just. Everyone's said it's amazing. Yeah, it looks like a real horse. You believe, the, you believe it's real. You believe that it's. I mean, it never ceased to amaze me, that play. And it's a wonderful play to be in because there's not a dry eye in the house at the end. You know, you're wow. standing on stage in the final scene, and my character actually saves the horse. I, I, I got to be the guy who, the horse is about to be shot in the head, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm giving this away to people who haven't seen it, but the horse is about to be shot in the head by a vet, and I get in there and I grab the vet's hand and go, no! And everyone in the audience goes, way! <laughs> and uh, it's great to be that guy who does so that. You, <sighs> so you, because you played Inspector... What did you, what I played it? Sergeant Thunder. Sergeant, sorry, Sergeant Thunder. Yeah. Um, and... So, like, you had a, quite a fairly main bit. Yeah, main yeah, show. I mean, he's a reasonably main character. He's only in the second half, really. But what's it like to play every night to 1,100, like, in a theatre? Do you just feel, like, fucking alive? It's exciting, yeah, it's exciting. I mean, the opening, I mean, it's like anything. You know, the, you, when you open the show, you're too nervous to do it well, really. I mean, my, my first night, I, I wouldn't say I fucked it up, but I... Didn't I, it was too? It's not like stand up. I mean, stand up. You, um, you, you know, a you're just on your own, and um, if anything happens, you can come away from what you're talking about. You can, you can forget what you're saying in stand up and go, oh, what was I talking about? And somebody in the audience might even. You have you. notes on your hand. Yeah, you have notes on your hand. <laughs> uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. But when you're acting, you can't draw. You can't. You know, the, the whole magic, the whole illusion's gone. If you go, uh, where was I? You know, the illusion's gone if you do that. So, yeah, your opening night often in a play, and in any play, not just in Warhorse, but in any play I've done. Um, I'm actually going on to do um, this Christmas. I'm doing the p panto. Brilliant. At the Royal Lyceum in Edinburgh, and I shall be playing. <laughs> it's my first ever, actually. I've never played a... Dame before. <laughs> oh, you're the dame. Uh, well, Wonderful. It's it's it <laughs> is the dame. It's a slightly dark dame, but it is the dame. It's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, and I'm playing the Queen of Hearts. <laughs> so um yes, it is a dame. Yeah. It's not quite widow twanky, but it's it's it is in that it's in the widow twanky ballpark. So you go from Warhorse, a serious I know to just Which is more like stand up, you know, playing the dame in a in a Christmas show is a bit more related to stand-up than... Yeah, usually break the fourth I mean, wall. it's more of a... Yeah, break the fourth wall. Uh, it's, you know, people who know me as a comedian are not surprised that I'm doing a, a sort of panto, because loads of comedians do oh, pantos. Whereas doing things like, as you say, Uncle Wagner or Vanya, as it really is. <laughs> if you're doing Chekhov, <laughs> Shakespeare... I mean, actually, Phil Jupiter's is playing bottom at the moment in Bath at the Bath Theatre Royal. Really? Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so he's... Um, and Phil's a great actor. And Phil's, Phil is actually someone who's totally known for being a comedian and a DJ, all that kind of stuff. But he is actually a really good actor, and he's doing Shakespeare at the moment. So... Um, but Shakespeare is one of those guys who gives you everything, you know. I mean, you can be doing Richard III or Henry V, which is all quite serious stuff... Or you can be doing Twelfth Night and playing Toby Belch or play, doing Bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream. And it's total frivolous comedy stuff. It's, you know, but people tend to think, oh, Shakespeare's serious. But it's not, actually. 
So you can have more fun. So you're looking forward to having this panto yeah. know, with the stand-up. Because you can break away. You can yeah, improvise. Yeah. You can talk shit. You can, well, I mean, I mean, we haven't started, obviously, haven't started rehearsals yet. But it'd be interesting to see how much latitude I got. I mean, I, the last time I was at the Royal Lyceum, I actually did Shakespeare, the, the, the Winter's Tale. And I played Autolycus, who's the comic role in that. And the director there said, listen, you know, no fourth wall for you. You know, uh, and I wandered around the auditorium. Uh, I, I, I did all sorts of things. I threw, um, I mean, during the matinees, when the, you get a lot of old people fast asleep, I would have my pockets full of rolled up tissues and just throw them at the people who were sleeping. And, yeah. Or try to, there was a guy with his mouth open, you know. And I'm trying to get it into his mouth, and the audience are all like enjoying that, you know. But um, but then there, uh, the Winter's Tale is one of those Shakespeare plays which is half serious and half frivolous. So the scenes that are serious are serious, and the scenes that are frivolous are frivolous. So and there is a real define in that. But so you've, you know. it's quite amazing. Like you, you've uh, there's not many. Let's be honest, not many comics who can get into that world, especially the serious stuff. Yeah. You know, and uh, how have you managed not to be typecast? I don't know. I think You know what I mean? I've done it all the time since I left. I've been doing stand-up since the early 90s, and I've been doing acting since the early 90s. I have, a, I have different agents. I have acting agent, I have stand-up agent, I have uh, voiceover agent. So I, and they're all kept quite separate, you know. So it's like, it's a bit like guys I know, like mates of mine who work in the building trade, you know, who, you know, you know, if you're an electrician uh, or a plasterer, you both work in the building trade. And I know electricians who can do plastering. And I know plasterers who can do a bit of electrics. Um, but they're very different jobs. And I think stand-up and acting are two different jobs. And you see, you do see some stand-ups who are, not very good actors um and you see actors who are not very good stand-ups as well but i think the secret is to absolutely treat them differently like an electrician would treat do being an, doing that job very differently from when they're doing plastering and if you if you get it blurred then you're going to fuck up so you have to define it you have to say i am now acting i'm in the play i'm in the role i've learned my uh, lines and I'm, I'm i have a motivation in the scene and i am I am here to serve the play, to serve the writer, to to tell the story to the audience. That's why I'm here. Rather than as a comic, you're serving yourself. Yes, and oh. you're there to make the audience laugh. And, the and that's, but that's quite hard if you've only had acting training, uh, stand-up training. Yeah, and then you. I think what well, you started, you did both at the same time. Yeah. So, but you know, it's so true. If you're an actor, is a stand-up or stand-up is an actor. Yeah, they've I'm, learned one way, and they try and use that one way. It took me a long time to learn how to... It took me longer than I wish it had taken me to learn how to be a... to do stand-up well. I was too... I was too theatrical when I first started stand-up. It was too much of a performance. And now it's more... I've learned it. Dower. Yeah, no Dower. more Scottish. <laughs> Dower is the way, yeah. Um, on this Social Angle podcast, before we wrap... Um, we have two things. Um, I always, because I'm an impressionist, um, I can't do a uh, Morgan Freeman impression. So what I do this, and I spring this, spring, spring this on wow. uh, guests. I say um, that I'd ask them to do um, one of their own jokes that they have. Right. Doesn't matter how, how long it is, one of their jokes. 
but I want them to do it an impression of Morgan Freeman. Wow. So what we're going to do now, as I, you think, and this is my favorite moment when people okay, look off okay, going, wow. what the fuck is this? What is this? What is it? So he sprung it on us. But as an actor, hmm. as a thespian, as a comedian, yes, <laughs> we're going to set this up and then uh, Alan Francis, you're going to do one of your jokes, doing an impression of Morgan Freeman. Right. You'll tell your joke as Morgan Freeman. Right. Okay. So here uh, is Alan Francis doing uh, the Morgan Freeman impression. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the enormously talented Morgan Morgan Morgan, Morgan. Morgan Freeman. Rehabilitated. It's just a bullshit word. So you go on and stamp your form, Sonny, and stop wasting my time. Because to tell you the truth, I don't give a shit. sight of myself through the steam like a Buddha emerging from the water and I thought Jesus Christ you've really got to lose this mirror <laughs> that's great I don't know I mean no, that's great no, no, no there's no wrong answers no. no wrong it's just fucking great but I love how you really went there's no you really yeah, yeah. good. Well, he's he's great, isn't he, Morgan Freeman? He's the man. I think Morgan Freeman should be the next president of the United States. Okay, yeah. is that it? Yeah. What? Why is that? Because he was really good president in Deep Impact. <laughs> I mean, he'd be better than Trump, yeah. at least. Oh, Christ. <laughs> you know, so that's one thing. Tr yeah, yeah. Trump. I, I think, you know, can you imagine most people? You know, there's a guy just who I passed at Farringdon Station when I came out there. I think he'd be a better president of the United States than, than Trump. He was a guy with a, with a woolly hat selling, um, selling newspapers. And um, he looked like he knew more about how to handle international affairs than Donald <laughs> Trump. <laughs> Definitely. Somebody, uh, thank God it's not our country. No. Well, well, we'll, we'll find out. The social Um, also, uh, we do this social hand grenade uh, podcast because, you know, I say silly things where I don't mean to, but everyone puts their foot in it. Um, and also, it's a bit of a laugh. Can I ask you, um, is there a social hand grenade moment, a social faux pas you've done in your life where even now you think you could be in the bath or whatever and you go, ah, that still hurts. That moment oh, still God. hurts. Well, yes, I'm sure there is. I mean... I, I hate that thing where I've, d I've done this a couple of times where I've uh, talked about someone to someone else and then the person has overheard me. Uh, I remember ages ago uh, there was this guy called uh, Phil and he was a sort of 
strange kind of character uh, who, who hung around the Edinburgh theatre scene. And it was so... I was talking to someone else about what an arsehole <laughs> Phil was. You know, and I was being really quite sort of emphatic, you know, and saying, he's such a fucking arsehole. And I turned around and Phil was there. <laughs> just standing at my shoulder. And without skipping a beat, I just went, oh, hello, Phil. <laughs> I, sort of, I tried to pretend I was talking about a different Phil. But, um, but I didn't get away with that. And I do think, oh, God. Even though he is an arsehole. It's funny how... <laughs> it's funny how someone... You don't want him to think you're an arsehole. No, even no though that's he's the main thing. Yeah. Um, Alan Francis, uh, look, thanks so much for being on the Social Hand Grenade podcast. Um, you're on uh, Twitter... Alan Francis at Alan Francis eight. That's it, yeah. And you do stand up everywhere and you act. And where um, for the for the panto this winter? Well, I see him in Edinburgh. In Edinburgh. And um, what's it called? It's called Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. 